You're listening to Radio Maria, Christian Voice in Your Home. Great Apperson to the show. This is the Promised Messiah, Judaism. What voice, Shulman? Hi, this is Roy Shulman, and welcome again to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic Church, or seen the other way around, that celebrates the completion, the full realization of the promise of Judaism in the Catholic Church and her sacraments. Well, we're in the middle of Lent right now, and this Lent is certainly an unprecedentedly uh, grievous Lent in in one particular way. Um, I know that the world is facing um, a lot of suffering through the coronavirus. Um, there have been other there have been other bad um, viruses, bad flu viruses in the past, uh, swine flu, and and um, I think one was called the Asian flu. And certainly there was the uh, Spanish flu back in the uh, beginning of the 20th century. That's not really unprecedented. Um, although, of course, my heart goes out to, to all the those who are suffering directly and indirectly from it. But I wanted to focus on another aspect of the current Lent, which truly is unprecedented. And that is the many, many dioceses in the United States. I hope not all, but all the ones that I've been able to track down that have suspended the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass through the rest of Lent and even through Easter Sunday. That is unprecedented. I don't think there's been any time, if I can say so, I'm not sure there's been any time in history when, by order of the bishops, the Masses have been discontinued. I know that there have been times in history when, by order of the government, uh, certain anti-clerical governments, anti-Catholic governments might have banned masses, for instance, in, in communist countries, in communist China, in the Masonic revolutions of Central America, and the perhaps other Masonic revolutions too, the French Revolution, in fact. Masses were banned, but it never came by order of the church. It came by order of the secular authorities. I think this is the first time in history it's come by order of the church, within the church. And certainly in my lifetime, there's been no um, cessation of the holy sacrifice of the Mass. I suspect in none of our lifetimes has it been a cessation of the holy sacrifice of the Mass. And it is a source of um, great suffering to many of us. I know it is to me and to my wife. Um, I think it is to, to many of our listeners. And it is a source of great suffering, I am sure, to our Lord and to the Most Holy Trinity. And so I want to dedicate today's show to some aspects of, of that, of the suspension of masses in so many dioceses. I, I, I think that, if I'm not mistaken, not only have all the masses, public masses, in uh, Rome been canceled, but the churches have even been closed, and I think that's true perhaps throughout Italy. I don't know what other countries it's true of, um, but I'm afraid it's quite a few, and it certainly includes the United States. Um, and in my diocese, we're not even able to visit Jesus in the tabernacle, because the churches have been closed by order of the bishops. Now, as in everything that happens, it's impossible not to see this as part of divine providence, especially when in such a special way it affects the faith, it affects the church, and it affects the sacraments. Now, 
I don't know how far to go with this, so I'm taking a little breath to see. Okay, clearly we're living in extremely dire times before this happened. We have seen in the last decade or so an exposure of tremendous moral corruption in the hierarchy within the church and within society as a whole. Of course, we've seen a great, great, great moral corruption, the embrace of abortion and euthanasia, the abandonment of Christianity throughout what used to be the Holy Roman Empire and, in fact, throughout the Western world, an abandonment of Christianity by society and governments, a turning our backs, especially within the Church, on evangelization, on the conversion of non-Catholics to the true faith or on the conversion of uh, Christian non-Christians to the truth of Jesus and Christianity. You know, if you've been listening to the show, that as a Jewish convert, I feel this particularly profoundly in the way the Church has abandoned its mission to bring the Jews into the Church. Uh, we've seen, of course, the almost total abandonment of sexual morality in our culture. Um, the, uh, and in fact, the dissolution of the concept of marriage as between a man and a woman and with an eye towards uh, procreation and fidelity and a public embrace of sins which traditionally are known as the sins that call out to heaven for vengeance and they certainly include uh, sexual sins and the killing of the innocent, in this case the unborn. Now, we know that God writes with human history, and um, I think it's impossible to see the current unprecedented chastisement, let's say, of a secession, uh, excuse me, of a um, cessation of the uh, holy sacrifice of the Mass, at least as such can be attended by the faithful, because of course the priests are still uh, permitted and encouraged, I'm sure, to pray, to celebrate private Masses, but we, the faithful, can't partake of the Eucharist. It's impossible not to see this as on all woven together with the corruption in the Church, the corruption in our society, as a, perhaps an a externalization, a, a kind of a picture produced by God of just how sad the state of the world is and how dire it is. And it's also, we know, a picture of what is to precede the end of the world, uh, the end times. Not saying, of course, that it is um, the beginning of the end times, but as a picture of what is going to precede the end times, because we know from a countless number of saints, and I will go into some of their quotes in a moment, that before the second coming, there will be a total cessation of the holy sacrifice of the Mass. So, up until now, this has been a bit of an introduction. What I'm going to do now is um, read quotes from saints about the centrality of the Mass, the centrality of the Eucharist, and the uh, prophecy that the Mass will cease to be celebrated for, I believe the general consensus is three and a half years before the Second Coming actually happens. And then, after those quotes, my intention for today's show is to go into a reading, a very beautiful reading, by um, Mary, Venerable Mary of Agrita, uh, who was a visionary saint, actually, a, a visionary venerable of the 17th century, who actually saw the Last Supper celebrated, or had visions 
purportedly of Jesus celebrating the Last Supper, which of course was the institution of the Eucharist. And let me just interrupt myself for a moment and say that um, it's, it, my, one of my Lenten practices is to try to pray the Stations of the Cross every day during Lent. And when this edict came down in my diocese that there'd be no more public masses, um, the last public mass of the diocese that I attended, I prayed the Stations of the Cross and I saw all of the Stations of the Cross. You can think of all of what Jesus went through in the Passion as having gone through, him having gone through in order to bring us the gift of the Eucharist, to bring us himself, his body, blood, soul, and divinity that we can consume daily if we wish. And that that was actually obviously the fruit of the Last Supper, since the Last Supper was the first Catholic Mass. But we can see the Eucharist itself as the summit and the pinnacle of what Jesus made available to us through his sacrifice, through the entire passion. And therefore, it's, it's particularly poignant that it was the Eucharist itself that uh, we've been deprived of this Lent. Uh, St. Padre Pio famously said that it would be easier for the world to survive without the sun than for the world to survive without the Holy Mass. And another, um, uh, another visionary uh, saint, using the word casually, uh, Marie-Julie Jeanne, had. she also lived only on the Eucharist. She also had the stigmata. She also was a victim soul. And at one point, St. Michael told her in a vision that the celebration of the mysteries of our holy religion is what enrages most the enemies of God. We can see the holy sacrifice of the Mass and the reception of the Eucharist as the absolute front lines of the battle between humanity in the service of God and the rage and fury and vicious destructiveness of the devil. And that is, of course, what has been withdrawn from us this Lent. So let me just go into some quotes of saints about the fact that the Mass shall cease uh, in the period immediately preceding the Second Coming. Again, I'm not saying this is the period immediately preceding the Second Coming, but I think it might be a bit of a foretaste. St. Francis de Sales, uh, Bishop and Doctor of the Church, quote, Is it not written that the revolt and separation must come, and that the sacrifice shall cease? and that the Son of Man shall hardly find face on earth at his second visible return when he will come to judge. All these are passages are understood of the affliction which Antichrist shall cause in the church. St. Alphonsus Liguori, It is true that the Mass will cease on earth at the time of the Antichrist. The sacrifice of the Mass is to be suspended according to the prophecy of Daniel, Daniel 12. Um, quote, the devil has always attempted by means of heretics to deprive the world of the mass, making them precursors of Antichrist, who, before anything else, will try to abolish and will actually abolish the holy sacrifice of the mass as a punishment for the sins of men, according to the prediction of Daniel. Quote, and strength was given him against the continual sacrifice. If I may interject, I, I do think that 
the um, abolition of not the sacrifice of the Mass, but of our ability to receive communion, is certainly a punishment for the sins of men. Pope Pius XII, uh, St. Pope Pius XII, if I'm not mistaken now, a day will come when the civilized world will deny its God, when the Church will doubt as Peter doubted. In our churches, Christians will search in vain for the red lamp where God awaits them in the tabernacle. Like Mary Magdalene weeping before the empty tomb, they will ask, where have they taken him? St. Irenaeus of Lyon, um, the time that his tyranny shall last during which the saints shall be put to flight, they who offer a pure sacrifice unto God, the sacrifice and the libation shall be taken away and the abomination of desolation shall be brought into the temple even unto the consummation of the time shall the desolation be complete. In other words, that there will be no sacrifice of the Mass until the Second Coming actually comes about. St. Hippolytus, the churches shall lament with a great lamentation, for there shall be offered no more oblation, nor incense, nor worship acceptable to God. The precious body and blood of Christ shall not be manifest in those days, the liturgy shall be extinct, but there shall be upon men darkness and mourning upon mourning and woe upon woe. Um, Cardinal Manning, the Holy Fathers who have written upon the subject of the Antichrist and the prophecies of Daniel, all of them unanimously say that in the latter end of the world, during the reign of the Antichrist, the holy sacrifice of the altar will cease. I could go on and on and on and on with saints um, that that confirm that the uh, Holy Mass will cease before the Second Coming. Uh, blessed John Henry Newman, now Saint John Henry Newman, they shall take away the daily sacrifice, words which the early fathers interpret to mean that Antichrist will suppress for three and a half years all religious worship. Um, Anyway, I will end there with these readings from saints that all unanimously concur that the holy sacrifice of the Mass will cease uh, for three and a half years prior to the Second Coming. And I'm saying this, uh, reading these for two reasons. One is, um, I know that everyone's very concerned about this virus, but I wish, I wish to encourage us, I don't know how to put this, um, I feel cast adrift a little bit in my horrible, empty sense of sorrow and mourning about the loss of the Eucharist. And I wish a little bit of more attention was paid to the loss of the Eucharist rather than simply to the prevalence of the new flu virus. And I know that there are many of us out there who are grieving very, very deeply over our, our loss of the Mass. And I want to basically enter into that grieving, enter into that mourning, dedicate the show to that mourning, um, so that those of us who do feel it do not feel so alone, but respect the infinite depth of that catastrophe. So um, with that, let me um, transition to 
a reading of the institution of the Most Holy Sacrifice at the Mass, an institution of the Eucharist. And um, if you may have been wondering so far on this show what this has to do with um, Jesus the Promised Messiah of Judaism, what this has to do with the transition between Judaism to the Catholic Church and her sacraments, the fulfillment of Judaism in the Catholic Church and her sacraments, let me just point out that basically all of sacramental Judaism, all of the sacrificial system of sacramental Judaism, which is what all Judaism was about if you read the Old Testament, besides the worship of the one true God, it was about the animal sacrifice, the temple, the ritual purity, and so forth. All of that was simply a prefigurement of the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus on Calvary and the institution of the holy sacrifice of the Mass, which would then make present over and over and over again Jesus' sacrifice on Calvary in between the very first celebration of the holy sacrifice of the Mass, which of course was the Passover Seder of Good Friday until the end of time when the sacrifice of the Mass will cease for three and a half years before the second coming. So, in fact, it is, in a very real sense, the Eucharist and the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, which is, in itself, the fulfillment and the recapitulation of all of Judaism that preceded it. And, of course, that pivot point, that fulcrum at which Judaism was transformed into the Catholic Church and her sacraments, was the very first Catholic Mass and the very last sacramental um, Jewish Passover Supper, which was, in fact, the Last Supper. So I'm now going to transition to reading from a Venerable Mary of Agrita, her account of the First Eucharist of the Last Supper. Before I do so, let me point out a perhaps irrelevant point, which I read uh, today for the first time with some chauvinistic gratification which was that Mary of Agrita herself was from a a Jewish converso family, from a Jewish family that had converted to Catholic faith. Her father, at least, was from what was called a converso family. So, um, anyway, that perhaps is a little inappropriate. In that case, I apologize. So now I'm reading from Mary of Agrita's main work, which is called The City of God, for thick volumes, um, my guess is about 800 pages each, very beautiful series of visions of uh, mostly the uh, life of Christ, uh, but of salvation history. So reading her account of the Last Supper, uh, Christ our Savior celebrates the Last Supper with his disciples according to the law. Our Redeemer proceeded on his way to Jerusalem on the evening of the Thursday preceding his passion and death. During their conversation on the way, while he instructed them in the approaching mysteries, the apostles proposed their doubts and difficulties, and he, as a teacher of wisdom and as a loving father, answered them in words which sweetly penetrated into their very hearts. For having always loved them, he, like a divine swan, in these last hours of his life, manifested his life with so much greater, excuse me, manifested his love with so much the greater force of amiable sweetness in his voice and manner. The knowledge of his impending passion and the prospect of his great torments 
not only did not hinder him in the manifestations of his love, but, just as fire is more concentrated by the frost, so his love broke forth with so much greater force at the prospect of those sufferings. The conflagration of the love which burned in the heart of Jesus issued forth to overpower by its penetrating activity. The love of the Divine Master was not daunted by the impending ignominies of his passion, nor dampened by the ignorance of his apostles and their disloyalty, which he was so soon to experience on their part. The apostle asked him where he wished to celebrate the Paschal Supper, for on that Thursday night the Jews were to partake of the Lamb of the Pasch, a most notable and solemn national feast. Though all of their feasts, though of all of their feasts, this eating of the Paschal Lamb was the most prophetic and significant of the Messiah and of all the mysteries connected with him and his work. The apostles were as yet scarcely aware of its intimate connection with Christ. The Divine Master answered by sending St. Peter and St. John to Jerusalem to make arrangements for the Paschal Lamb. This was to be in a house where they would see a servant enter with a jug of water and whose master they were to request in Christ's name to prepare a room for his last supper with his disciples. The two apostles immediately departed on their commission and following the instructions, they asked the owner of this house to entertain the master of life for the solemn celebration of this feast of the unleavened bread. The heart of this householder was enlightened by special grace and he readily offered his dwelling with all the necessary furniture for celebrating the supper according to the law. After due preparation had been made, the Savior and the other apostles arrived at this apartment. His most blessed mother and the holy women in her company came soon after. Upon entering, the most holy queen prostrated herself on the floor and adored her divine son as usual asking his blessing and begging him to let her know what she was to do. He bade her go into another room where she would be able to see all that was done on this night according to the decrees of providence, and where she was to console and instruct as far as was proper the holy women of her company. The great lady obeyed and retired with her companions. She, knowing that the hour of her holy communion was at hand, continued to keep her interior vision riveted on the doings of her most holy son and to prepare herself for the worthy reception of his body and blood. Let me just point out something here. In our lives, in our entire lives between birth and death, the reception of the most holy sacrament is the pinnacle of our lives, is the most important action we take in our lives, is the most central salvific, spiritual, of eternal weight and worth thing we do in our entire lives. Here was the Blessed Virgin Mary. She was about to be present at the Last Supper. She was about to be present at the passion and death of her son. And what was the central focal point of her consciousness? Her reception of Holy Communion. The fact that she was soon to receive the Holy Eucharist. That was at the center of her consciousness. Not the Last Supper, not the parting from Jesus, not the Passion, but the reception of the Holy Eucharist. That is how central, how major, how cosmic, 
how foundational the reception of the Holy Eucharist is to us Catholic Christians, and that is what we have been deprived of, not by the secular authorities, not by the danger of death by contracting a flu, but by the order of the shepherds of the church, the successors of the apostles, into whose hands our salvation has been put. Not our physical health has been put, not obedience to secular authorities has been put, but our spiritual health and our salvation has been put into their hands, and they have deprived us of that Eucharist. Back to the reading. His most holy mother having retired, the Lord and Master Jesus with his apostles and disciples took their places to celebrate the Feast of the Lamb. He observed all the ceremonies of the law as prescribed by himself through Moses. During this last supper he gave to the apostles an understanding of all of the ceremonies of the figurative law, as observed by the patriarchs and prophets. He showed them how beneath it was hidden he showed them how beneath it, that is beneath the old law, was hidden the real truth, namely all that Jesus himself was to accomplish as Redeemer of the world. He made them understand that now the law of Moses and its figurative meaning was evacuated, was made empty by its true fulfillment, that as the light of the new law of grace had begun to shine, the shadows were dispelled, and the natural law, which had been reconfirmed by the precepts of Moses, was now placed permanently upon its real foundation, ennobled and perfected by his, Jesus' own teachings, that the efficacy of the sacraments of the new law abrogated those of the old as being merely figurative and ineffectual. He told them that by celebrating this supper, he set an end to the rights and obligations of the old law, which was only a preparation and a representation of what he was now to accomplish, and hence, having attained its end, had now become useless. Here we see Jesus himself teaching his apostles that it was at the Last Supper, it was by his celebration of the first Mass of the Sacrament of the Eucharist, that all of the figurative value of the old law had been fulfilled, and that, in fact, the performance of the old law had thus attained its end and had, at that moment, become useless. Continuing with the reading from Mary of Agrida. On this occasion, the Redeemer composed a new canticle by which he exalted the Eternal Father for having in his Son fulfilled the figures of the old law and for thus advancing the glory of his most holy name. Prostrate upon the earth, Jesus humiliated himself in his humanity before God, confessing, adoring, and praising the divinity as infinitely superior to his humanity. Then addressing the Eternal Father, he gave vent to the burning affection of his heart, in the following sublime prayer. My eternal Father and infinite God, thy divine and eternal will resolve to create this my human nature, in order that I may be the head of all those that are predestined for the glory and happiness, and who are to attain their true blessedness by availing themselves of my works. For this purpose and in order to redeem them from the fall of Adam, I have lived with them thirty-three years, 
Now, my Lord and Father, the, oppor the opportune and acceptable hour for fulfilling thy eternal will has arrived. The greatness of thy holy name is about to be revealed to men, and thy incomprehensible divinity through holy faith is to be known and exalted above all nations. It is time that the seven-sealed book be opened as thou hast commissioned me to do, and that the figures of old come to a happy solution. The ancient sacrifices of animals which prefigured the one I am now voluntarily to make of myself for the children of Adam, for the members of my mystical body, for the sheep of thy flock, must now come to an end. And I beseech thee in this hour to look down with an eye of mercy. If in the past thy anger has been placated by these ancient figures of sacrifices, which I am now about to abrogate, let it now, my father, be entirely extinguished, since I am ready to offer myself in voluntary sacrifice to die for men on the cross and to give myself as a holocaust of my love. Therefore, Lord, let the rigor of thy justice be relaxed and look upon the human race with eyes of mercy. O let us institute a new law for men by which they may throw down the bars of their disobedience and open for themselves the gates of heaven. Let them now find a free road and open portals for entering with me upon the vision of thy divinity, as many of them as will follow my footsteps and obey my law. That action, my friends, which Jesus was inaugurating with his beautiful prayer to the Father was the action of the holy sacrifice of the Mass that he was about to institute, was the action of the reception worthily of the Holy Eucharist. Now we have come, tragically, to the halfway point in the show, and um, I am once again going to try a slightly novel thing, which is I'm going to be playing our short musical break from my end here, in my version of the studio, rather than having the studio contribute it. So we will be going into uh, an extremely mournful rendition of O Sacred Head Surrounded by Crown of Piercing Thorn. Um, that will last for about about two to three minutes. Uh, I think it'll set a very worthy mood, after which I will continue with reading Mary of Agrita's account of the institution of the Eucharist. However, this is a live call-in program, so if you wish to call in uh, during this musical break, you're, you're more than welcome to. I will keep an eye on the call board, and um, if any calls come in during the break, I will turn to them before I continue with this reading. But with that, let us turn to our sacred head surrounded.
I will continue with reading Mary of Agrita's uh, vision of the institution of the Eucharist. With great diffidence do I enter upon the treatment of the ineffable mystery of the Holy Eucharist and of what happened at its institution. Christ had partaken of the prescribed supper with his disciples reclining on the floor around a table, which is elevated from it little more Oh, well, we do have a caller, so let me take the call, as I promised, and um, then continue with the reading. So, are you there, uh, Mrs. Gloria? Yes, I am. Uh, uh, I was wondering, what do we do when we need to go to confession? And if we were to receive the sacraments, can we ask Father to give us the sacraments? Uh, those, are, those are excellent... Well, those are, those are excellent questions, uh, the answers to which vary from diocese to diocese, I'm afraid. Um, I know that in my diocese, the priests are still hearing confession, uh, but not at fixed times, but you have to call the um, rectory and make an appointment to have your confession heard. Okay. I'm almost sure that's going to be the case, you know, throughout through, you know, basically throughout the whole world, certainly throughout the United States. Um, but, um, and uh, in my diocese, the priests are not allowed to give communion, basically, they're not allowed to give communion, so there's no way to receive communion. In other words, the priests are celebrating private masses, but they're not allowed to make that uh, Eucharist that they in fact, that the private mass is available to the faithful. That also may change from diocese to diocese. I know that another diocese in my state, um, rather imaginatively, the bishop is allowing a kind of a, a funny mass. I shouldn't say it that way, but uh, basically what the, what the bishop of that diocese has done is uh, they're live streaming the mass um, on people's, you know, live streaming it so people can watch it on their cell phones. They're sitting in their own cars in the parking lot watching the Mass on their cell phones. And then after the consecration, the priest is going out to the parking lot and going from car to car with the Eucharist giving people communion, which of course is a very clever way of avoiding the fact that the people are actually gathering. So basically what I'm saying is you're, you're just going to have to call your parish and find out what the local policy is. Okay. But well, thank you for asking that question. Amen. That's why I'm doing this show. Yeah, no, it's, it's very, very tragic. Uh, I, I'm afraid that... Thank you. Um, thank you so much. I will continue with the reading. Um, oh, well, I have another call. Terry, are you there? Right here. Uh, I just wanted to mention that here in southwest Louisiana, uh, we have a situation that uh, is palatable. Uh, the priests uh, of several of our, di of our parishes around New Iberia and Generet and Parks, Louisiana, they're in the parking lot set up. Uh, receiving people to have uh, uh, to confess their sins. And uh, also the masses are broadcast on Facebook Live. 
So sometimes I can see four or five different masses every day, various churches in this area. Priests and parishes that are on friends uh, on, on Facebook, I'm sure there are other groups of people that are groups of friends that uh, have uh, uh, the uh, mass and, and instructions from other parishes. It's definitely true. There are any number of masses being um, streamed live. I know my parish is doing it, and and I know, I mean, all, all over that's being done. Um, I know that in my diocese, no provision is being made, however, for receiving communion, uh, which is, uh, of course, watching a streamed mass is better than nothing, but it's not receiving... It's not receiving in the same way. I, I I don't want to get too controversial, but it's not it's not equivalent to receiving the Eucharist. Uh, it it can be very good in its own right, and one can make a spiritual communion, but um, it is it is not equivalent to receiving the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ in its real form, transubstantiated into the into the uh, bread. So. But it's better than nothing, and I thank God for that. And I, th- I thank God for the dioceses, which are making some effort, even without a, a gathering, a physical gathering, to make the Eucharist available. Um, thank you, thank you for the call, and I will continue with the uh, account of the very first Eucharist. By this arrangement, Jesus wished to put an end to the legal suppers and to the lower and figurative law and establish the new supper of the law of grace. From that time on, he wished the sacred mysteries to be performed on the tables or altars which are in use in the Catholic Church. The table for the Last Supper, for the Eucharist confection of the Last Supper, was covered with a very rich cloth, and upon it was placed a plate or salver and a large cup in the form of a chalice, large enough to hold the wine. All this was done in pursuance of the will of Christ our Savior, who by his divine power and wisdom directed all these particulars. The master of the house was inspired to offer these rich vessels, which were made of what seemed like a precious stone like emerald. The Lord seated himself at this table with the apostles and some of the other disciples, and then ordered some unleavened bread to be placed on the table and some wine to be brought, of which he took sufficient to prepare the chalice. Then the Master of Life spoke words of most endearing love to his apostles, and though his sayings were wont to penetrate to the inmost heart at times, yet on this occasion they were like the flames of a great fire of charity, which consumed the souls of his hearers. He manifested to them anew the most exalted mysteries of his divinity, humanity, and of the works of the redemption. He enjoined upon them peace and charity, of which he was now to leave a pledge, in the mysteries about to be celebrated. He reminded them that in loving one another they would be loved by the Eternal Father with the same love in which he was beloved. He gave them an understanding of the fulfillment of this promise in having chosen them to found the new church and the law of grace. He renewed in them the light concerning the supreme dignity, excellence, and prerogatives of his most pure virgin mother. This great lady entered more deeply into their meaning than the apostles and the angels, who were also present in bodily forms, adoring their true Lord, Creator, and King. By the hands of these angels, Enoch and Elias were brought to the cenacle from their place of abode, 
For the Lord wished that these fathers of the natural and of the written law should be present at the establishment of the law of the gospel, and that they should participate in its mysteries. Let me just interject. Here we see that the celebration of the first Mass was so central in salvation history that God saw to it that Enoch and Elijah were brought back to earth in their bodily forms in order to observe and adore Jesus in the institution of the Eucharist. All these being present, awaiting full of wonder what the author of life intended to do, there also in the hall appeared the person of the Eternal Father and of the Holy Ghost as they had appeared at the baptism of Christ of the Jordan and at the transfiguration on Mount Tabor. The entire heaven was transplanted to the cenacle of Jerusalem, for such great importance was the magnificence of this work by which the new church was founded, the law of grace established, and eternal salvation made secure. Christ confessed and extolled the immensity and infinitude of the Eternal Father, praying for the whole human race. So we see, I know that we think of the Passion as the pinnacle of the act of salvation of Christ, but we see in this description that in a more sacramental way, it was the institution of the Eucharist, the Last Supper, that was the pinnacle of the institution of salvation through the sacrifice of Christ. Now going to Christ's prayer on the spot. My Father and Eternal God, I confess, praise, and exalt thy infinite essence and incomprehensible deity, in which I am one with thee and the Holy Ghost, engendered from all eternity by thy intellect, as the figure of thy substance and the image of thy individual nature. In the same nature which I have assumed in the virginal womb of my mother, I wish to accomplish the redemption of the human race with which thou hast charged me. I wish to restore to this human nature the highest perfection and the plenitude of thy divine complaisance, and then I wish to pass from this world to thy right hand, bearing with me all those whom thou hast given me without losing a single one of them for want of willingness on our part to help them. My delight is to be with the children of men, and as in, thy, in my absence they will be left orphans if I do not give them assistance, I wish, my Father, to furnish them with a sure and unfailing token of my inextinguishable love and a pledge of the eternal rewards which thou holdest in reserve for them. I desire that they find in my merits an easy and powerful remedy for the effects of sin, to which they are subject on account of the disobedience of the first man, and I wish to restore copiously their right to the eternal happiness for which they were created. But since there will be few who will preserve themselves in this justice, they will need other assistance, so that they may reinstate themselves and strengthen themselves in the way of justification and sanctification, by being continually furnished with new and exalted gifts and favors of thy clemency in their dangerous pilgrimage through life. It was our eternal decree that they should have created existence and participate in our divine perfections and happiness for all eternity, and thy love, which caused me to assume a nature able to suffer and welcome the humiliation of the cross, would not rest satisfied until it invented new means of communicating itself to men 
according to their capacity and our wisdom and power. These means shall consist in visible and sensible signs adapted to their condition as sentient beings and causing invisible effects in the spiritual and in material part of their natures. In other words, he's talking about the physical reception of the Eucharist. Continuing with his prayer, to advance these high ends for thy exaltation and glory, eternal Lord and Father, in my name and in that of all the poor and afflicted children of Adam, I ask the fiat of thy eternal will. If their sins call out for thy justice, their neediness and misery appeal to thy infinite mercy. At the same time, I, on my part, interpose all the works of my humanity, which is indissolubly bound to my divinity. I offer my obedience in accepting suffering unto death, my humility in subjecting myself to the depraved judgment of men, the poverty and labors of my life, the insults of my passion and death, and the love which urges me to undergo all this for the advance of thy glory and for the spreading of thy knowledge and adoration among all creatures capable of thy grace and happiness. O thou, eternal Lord and my Father, hast made me the brother and the chief of men, and hast destined them to partake eternally of the joys of our divinity. As thy children, they are to be heirs with me of thy everlasting blessings, and as members of my body, they are to participate in the effects of my brotherly love. Therefore, as far as depends upon me, I desire to draw them on toward my friendship and to see them share in the goods of the divinity to which they were destined in their origin from their natural head, the first man. Impelled by this boundless love, Lord and Father, I ordain that from now on men may re-enter into thy full friendship and grace through the sacrament of baptism, that they may do so as soon as they shall be born to daylight, and their desire of renaissance into grace, which they cannot in their infancy manifest on their own account, shall with thy permission be manifested for them by their elders. Let them become immediate heirs of thy, of thy glory. Let them be interiorly and indelibly marked as children of my church. Let them be freed from the stain of original sin. Let them receive the gifts of faith, hope, and charity by which they may perform the works of thy children, knowing thee, trusting in thee, and loving thee for thine own self. I also ordain that besides this sacrament they be, may be rooted in another in which they shall be confirmed and rooted in the holy faith they have accepted and shall become courageous in its defense as soon as they shall arrive at the use of reason. By, by the justification of these sacraments men shall become fit to share in the highest token of my love in the exile of this their mortal life, namely, to receive me sacramentally under the species of bread and wine in an ineffable manner. Under the species of bread I shall leave my body, and under the species of wine my blood. In each one of them I shall be present really and truly, and I institute this mysterious sacrament of the Eucharist as a heavenly nourishment proportioned to their condition as wayfaring men. For their sake shall I work these miracles and remain with them until the end of the coming ages. And here we see Jesus having pronounced, of course, that the Eucharist was the highest, highest of the sacraments, the ultimate sharing in the love and redemption offered 
by Jesus. Um, thereupon, continuing with Saint Mary of Agreda, thereupon Christ our Lord took into his venerable hands the bread which lay upon the plate and interiorly asked the permission and cooperation of the Eternal Father that now and ever afterwards, in virtue of the words about to be uttered by him and later to be repeated in his holy church, he should really and truly become present in the host himself to yield obedience to these sacred words. While making this petition, he raised his eyes toward heaven with an expression of such sublime majesty that he inspired the apostles, the angels, and his virgin mother with new and deepest reverence. Then he pronounced the words of consecration over the bread, changing its substance into the substance of his true body, and immediately thereupon he uttered the words of consecration also over the wine, changing it into his true blood. As an answer to these words of consecration was heard the voice of the Eternal Father saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I delight, and shall take my delight to the end of the world, and he shall be with men during all the time of their banishment. In like manner was this confirmed by the Holy Ghost, the most sacred humanity of Christ in the person of the Word, gave tokens of profoundest veneration to the divinity contained in the sacrament of his body and blood. Think about that. The sacred humanity of Christ itself gave tokens of profoundest veneration to the divinity of Christ present in the uh, sacrament of his body and blood. The Virgin Mother in her retreat prostrated herself on the ground and adored her Son in the Blessed Sacrament with incomparable reverence. Then also the angels of her guard all the angels of heaven, and among them likewise the souls of Enoch and Elijah, in their own name and in the name of the holy patriarchs of the pro and prophets of the old law, fell down in adoration of their Lord in the holy sacrament of the Eucharist. All of the apostles and disciples who, with the exception of the traitor, believed in this holy sacrament, adored it with great humility and reverence according to each one's disposition. The great high priest Christ raised up his own consecrated body and blood in order that all who were present at this first Mass might adore it in a special manner, and they did. During this elevation, his most pure mother, St. John, Enoch, and Elijah were favored with special insights into the mystery of his presence in the sacred species. They understood more profoundly how in the species of the bread was contained his body and in those of the wine his blood, how in both, on account of the inseparable union of his soul with his body and blood, was present the living and true Christ, how with the person of the Word was also therein united the person of the Father and of the Holy Ghost, and how therefore, on account of the inseparable existence and union of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, the Holy Eucharist contained the perfect humanity of the Lord with the three divine persons of the Godhead. All this was understood most profoundly by the Heavenly Lady and by the others according to their decree. They also understood how the efficacy of the words of the consecration now endowed with such divine virtue that as soon as they are pronounced with the intention of doing what Christ did at that time by any priest since that time over the proper material, they would change the bread into his body and the wine into his blood, leaving the accidents to subsist in a new way and without their proper subject. 
they saw that this change would take place so certainly and infallibly that heaven and earth would sooner fall to pieces than that the effect of these words of consecration when pronounced in the proper mantle by this sacerdotal minister of Christ should ever fail. Unfortunately, I have come to the end of the time I have for reading this beautiful account. It is available, by the way, the um, uh, Mary of Agrita's um, Life of Christ can be found for free in PDF on the Internet. Um, let me simply close this show. This whole show has been a prayer, so I don't have to close with a prayer. But the intent of the show was to bring deeper into our hearts and the consciousness the infinite, ineffable gift of the sacrifice of the Mass and the reception of the Eucharist. We will have died before we will have the faintest inkling of an adequate understanding of what that means when we receive the Eucharist, of what that gift entails. I hope that this reading has made a little bit more lively in our hearts what that gift entails and therefore what this terrible, terrible Lenten fast and deprivation of reception of the Eucharist means and also just how grave the, this, the meaning of this act is in the eyes of heaven. The meaning of this Lenten fast of the Eucharist means the eschatological implications of it, the, um, the ways in which it might be bringing us into a closer realization of what will happen uh, near the end of time. And, of course, the good news about the end of time, the bad news is that we'll be without the Eucharist for three and a half years, but the good news is that Christ will come in his glory. So with that, remember the last words of the scriptures of the New Testament are, Come, Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. So let me close this show, in case we are coming on the times of the uh, second coming, with a fervent prayer and an invitation to you two to pray, Come, Lord Jesus. Come speedily, yea, even in our own days. And with that, it's time to say goodbye. You've been listening to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria with your host, me, Roy Showman. And if the second coming doesn't happen between now and then, I hope you join us again next week. Same time, same place. Bye for now. <laughs>